We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Good transparency helps answer questions. Bad transparency raises more questions than it answers. The one thing that I always come back to is trust. If I'm deciding to not share something, I want to always be fine if that thing was to be done. And I think that's the litmus test I use all the time in big decisions and small decisions. Mathilde, welcome to One to a Thousand podcast. Thanks so much for joining Jack and I. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Mathilde, one thing that I think is really unique about your leadership style that I always love talking to you about is that I think you haven't just wanted to innovate on product, which is, of course, like table stakes for any founder to do. But I think you've also liked rethinking a lot of parts of just like how work gets done. And I've seen you over the years explore lots of different formats of things like work-life balance and what the employee relationship looks like. I'm curious, after a lot of experimentation and things that you've tested, what's like one area where you've gone against the trend and you think other people are mostly doing things wrong? And then maybe what's an area where you've tried something new and then you've actually concluded that, you know, the way that uh, everybody else does it is is probably right? Such a great question. Uh, I'll start with... The first one, uh, maybe something that I'm doing differently. So there are a lot of reasons why I believe employees are engaged. But one of one of the ones I've invested a ton of time in is people feeling like they're a part of the journey. No one would disagree on the fact that feeling part of the journey makes people engaged, but I don't think that companies invest enough. And this is very linked to a value upfront, which is transparency. But... I feel like I've had to work against so many people on you need to share the bad news, you need to share the good news, you need to make sure that everyone understands the state of the business. Like, can you imagine, like, this recession is happening, everything is changing, like, valuations are changing, growth rates are like, everything. And if I'm not the most transparent with the team around how I'm thinking about this, how the board is thinking about this, what are we seeing with our peers, then I don't think we'll build the level of trust and engagement. Yet it's slightly counterintuitive because in moments like this, you could try to optimize for maximum like uh, excitement. And so really focusing on all the things that are great, but you are not stupid and they have a good feeling for what's working and not working and what's changing and not changing. So I would say that everything we've implemented for people to feel part of the journey from you know, feeling close to customers, to understanding the business, understanding where we're going, really investing a lot in this quarterly presentation that I do. We have weekly all hands. We have a lot of, you know, customers that come talk to us, like investors that share their personal. Like I could go on and on on how deliberate we are for people to feel part of the journey, sometimes at the expense of optimizing for sharing good news. I think, I mean, this one is interesting, one where uh, I've, you know, try to do things differently. And I think I'm wrong. Like, I think work-life balance is almost like, a, it's a red herring. Like what works for one person is going to be very different from what works for another. Like for some people, 
work-life balance means like you work super hard, but you travel with your kids. Like, and for some others, it's like you stop work at 4 p.m. And like, I've tried to make sure that everyone had a good work-life balance by implementing a set of tactics and rules that would apply for everyone. Like, you know, flexible Fridays and we don't have meetings on Fridays. But the truth is, like, some people hate that so much. Where I've made a mistake is thinking that work-life balance was a universal thing with a set of tactics that will work for everyone when, in fact, it's not true. As a tech, you know, industry, we've gone through a crazy up and down over the last few years. And I think both of those are um, areas where good times and bad times have an impact on what ways we think about them. So I'm a little bit curious to hear your reflections, just like as we've all gone through the downturn over the last 18 months. Has that in any ways impacted your thinking on what transparency should look like? Have you changed your thinking on transparency as a, not just a result of your own maturation, but as a result of the downturn? For sure. I think in many ways, uh, yes. In obvious ways, work-life balance is way easier when like if, like we're a SaaS company everyone is buying software you can actually grow pretty fast without working crazy hours and then all of a sudden like everyone is reconsidering how much they spend on SaaS tools and the reality is you actually need to work harder to get to the same result i think on transparency so maybe like and spe specifically like this concept of feeling part of the journey and and like really going back to basics and sharing like how the business is doing, what prime we're solving, like what product we're building. I, I feel like when times are great and growth solves all problems, like you don't need to be so deliberate about talking about where you're going and like having so many customers come. Like it's so exciting to be part of a winning team and like to have these career opportunities that come with the company doing super well. And so I guess I feel like I haven't necessarily done a good job when things were going so well. And then when things started going sideways and the economy started slowing down, I had to be so much more deliberate and coming back to things that we used to do in the early days, um, like the ones I mentioned before. Yeah, maybe, maybe one last question on this. I'm curious about how you think about pulling employees through that journey too. Like it's sometimes easy as founders when you're like, yeah, well, things are hard and this is like just what I have to do. So I'm going to do it because this company is like one of my babies and whatever. But I'm curious for, uh, you know, for, for a lot of employees, I think the reality that they're facing relative to say two years ago is they're working longer hours. It's more challenging and they're earning less money. And that's like a tough prospect for a lot of people to face. Um, even though it's just sort of the reality, I'm curious if you've had, or maybe just to hear about your experience kind of bringing people through that, you know, sort of new, new way of things. It's not going to work for everyone and you need to be okay with this. And I think one thing that I had to learn in the past few years has been embracing change. And I'm someone that is like sensitive like i get attached to people like i i don't love when some people are uh, leaving and then i've been working with more and more people and surrounding myself with more people telling me how you know these are also opportunities and i think i've just embraced change so much more than i used to and it's a good thing with that being said the thing i think we've most often optimized for and still optimized for is people that care about the pace of learning 
Because the reality is, you know, there are a lot of things, you're right, that just aren't as true. Like, it's very rare, like, right now to join a company and then a year later, like, your equity is worth, like, 10 times more. And then the year after, like, so you need to really find people who have the motivations that you think will be met during the journey. And what I found, and that's, like, to be honest, and I feel like, Jack, you're the same way because you talked about this, but one of the things I'm driven by is my pace of learning. I mean, I've been very happy with <laughs> with everything that has been happening because the pace at which I've been learning has been insane. But if people are not here to learn, one thing I had to educate them on is learning is not just about growing your team and like moving upwards. And it's also about owning more things and um I've spent a lot of time with CEOs that are much more experienced than me and who have told me how in their experience, these moments when things are slower are actually a good moment to increase your pace of learning. And I think like either you're motivated by that and that's great. You can work longer hours and still be a fulfilled person or you're not, in which case anything I can try to do will be vain and I should just embrace the fact that it might not be a good fit. Matilda, I, I want you to go deeper on uh, on transparency because it's it's easier to be transparent when things are going really well. It's it's hard to be transparent, or it's harder when things are are very difficult. Our CEO coach at OnDeck, uh, Jared Fleisler, would often quote your your piece on you know uh, you're thinking on good transparency versus bad transparency, and we get into these long debates of hey we're we're about to have a layoff or we're about to have this big thing at the company, you know, and we don't even have the answer for it yet. How transparent should we be? How should we not? What have you thought about in terms of uh, your litmus test for, for, for transparency and in terms of how you advise other founders? The way I talk about it is good transparency helps answer questions and bad transparency raises more questions than answer questions. Obviously, it's like once I've said this, you still struggle. But the one thing that I always come back to is trust. If I'm deciding to not share something, I want to always be fine if that thing was to be done. And I think that's the litmus test I use all the time in big decisions and small decisions. So I default to sharing a lot. Like, for example, before doing layoffs, like we had a monthly financial update and like I shared everything, like how our burn was evolving, how our churn was evolving, like was it raising more questions? Like hard to tell, like hard to quantify. But what I know is in the processes of, of doing this, I was building trust. Like the reality is it's not because something is not going as well that you immediately know what to do. And therefore we decided to be transparent about the state of the business so that when we would announce layoffs, then people would understand where we were coming from and nothing was hidden from them. So I mean, it's hard to quantify. And I think like the layer you can add is how much you're working towards building trust versus trying to like just say, I'm not raising questions. Like it's not possible. When things are hard, like transparency will raise questions. I remember coming to front and talking to a, an, an employee that has been at front for like seven, eight years. And he was saying, yeah, I mean, we've heard because I was on that leave. And, so, and he was saying, we heard all these good things, but like at the end of the day, like we know things are not as well. So like people know. And so you shouldn't think, you know, sh not sharing will not raise questions. Like people know. And so you'd rather share bad news. 
Yeah, one one of my evolutions on this has been because obviously we've had more, probably like everybody else, have had more bad news to share in recent years than in the prior years. Has been, it's just been surprising to me that it's really impactful sharing not just the sort of numbers and metrics, but like giving the sort of narrative and like the qualitative like story tying it all together. Because just like hitting people with like a board deck's worth of metrics doesn't really give people the story. And so in some ways, actually walking out and, hey, this is like a challenging year for the business for these reasons. I'm like, here's the, like really arming people with the story, which feels so counterintuitive to do because, you know, you just as the founder, you don't, you don't, you want to just say, oh, here's the numbers, but like things are good, but actually say, here's the numbers and here's why this is bad. I've actually found that that's like really important in rallying. Yeah. And I, I love that the phrasing of, um, if it got out, would I feel okay about that? Like, would 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 it instill trust? Would people understand why I had to keep this uh, yeah. keep this behind closed doors? That's very helpful. You mentioned earlier that you get attached to people, uh, and so you certainly think a lot about uh, like any good CEO, you know, how to retain your your best people. Um, I'm curious as your approach to employee retention more broadly in terms of what, what have you learned about it, what's what's been effective, or how do you even think about uh, it at a high level? At the high level, I think that the two things that keep people engage or more equal important is one what I talked about so I won't talk about it but like feeling part of the journey like and feeling part of the journey is like understanding everything but also like feeling like they belong and so you know a concrete example of this is we just did a company-wide upside and yes it costs money and you know we're not in like full money spend mode but like I think it's super important to build these connections or another example is I was uh, very deliberate about bringing people in the office like super early on, like pretty much as soon as vaccines were out. And that was in SF, like a pretty controversial move. But I thought that will help make people feel like they belong. Um, so I think feeling like being deliberate about this, especially in these times where hybrid remote is more of a thing than three years ago. And the second thing is learning and growing. And like, Probably the biggest impact that you can have is uh, like on someone's career is who their manager is. And so holding managers to uh, very high standards and then investing in them because like a lot of them, uh, all of them could, could grow. I just felt in the early days that as long as the business is doing well and you're doing good work and you feel like you belong, it will be fine. But then now I've, of course, changed my mind and I think having a great manager is the biggest impact. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Earlier, you know, we were talking about the importance of hard work. I'm, I'm curious how much self-selection you, you you feel like you're doing on the recruiting side. Like I've seen JDs, uh, I, I think Clubhouse famously had one that went viral that was like saying, hey, we want people who wanna work on weekends or like things that would other people would get mad at to, as to be like, you know, repel them. Or you know, some people also do that on the sort of, um, like uh, Replit, I think, has something like, hey, this was started by Palestinians and our first customer was Israeli. Like, if you can't work with anyone across a political boundary, like, you know, don't work here. This And so I'm, I'm curious how much you believe in that or recommend kind of uh, strong self-select, you know, strong uh, identification as a way to repel people who might not be a fit. Um, so, such a great question, I think, like, and definitely something that I think we've not done a great job at, uh, just because I think we've tried to please so many people and at the end of the day, impossible. 
I would say now we're like, we're so much clearer. The way I talk about it, and it's very cliche, but I think very true is work hard, play hard. So I actually don't care if people are working on the weekends or like taking a lot of PTO or like whatever it is. Like, again, like what will, you know, help someone be high energy at work is very different from another person. Like some people just like to have balanced days. And then you have French people, they work crazy hours and then they take like a month off in the summer. And that's, it's fine. Like whatever works for you. Uh, but when you're on, you're on. And I think that's the piece that I didn't do a good job at self-selecting. Like I tried to pretend that you could have like the most amazing work-life balance and do everything at once. And then it was really hard to tell people like when you're on, you're on. And like, yes, there like there is a late meeting. Hopefully it's an exception, but there is a late meeting and there is a deadline and we have to meet it. And, and that's what it is. So embracing and being very explicit about work hard, play hard and what it means has been super beneficial. Yeah. And it was really hard in a market when like every company could grow really fast without working very hard. And so just the talent market dynamics were so different. Yes. the I mean... I've hired a few people in the past few weeks. The market is insane. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually curious to hear uh, if you have any sort of like general reflections you can share about like what recruiting looks like in 2023 versus 2021 and how you've adapted or adjusted. Well, I will tell you that what like it was energy draining for me to recruit in the crazy 2021. Like it was energy draining because... I felt like I was like I was selling and I always want to be partly selling, but like most importantly, I want to assess the fit and I want to see some excitement on the other side as well. And like it's almost like to get the best candidates, you had to talk to these people who give you like there is a one percent chance they might be interested, but I'd rather take this one percent chance because and so then you end up with ninety-nine conversations out of a hundred with people that are actually not that interested, so energy draining. And now it's so different because like you have amazing talent and so you're still like telling them why and what is France but you get so much energy in return because they're so excited to go to a great company yeah totally no that captures it well that it feels like balanced and I agree like you still have to be selling the company I don't think you can like walk in and think like there's still a lot of demand for great people but it feels a lot more balanced and there's also more time in the process in a way where like in the frenzy it was just like if you don't move now it's like you don't even get to fully evaluate before they have 10 offers so now there's just a little bit more pace to it all which is which is i think better for everybody honestly 100 percent. it was always a short-term optimization to try to you know tell them everything is amazing about or not i mean there are amazing things about friend and we have challenges to fix if you're not excited about them then don't join because that's the reality yeah how else is uh, Mathilde as a CEO in 2023 different from uh, the Mathilde of 2021 as, as a CEO, would you, would you say? Well, I can be very transparent in Jack knows this because we took a lot. So my level of energy in 2023 is much, much higher than 2021. And I can explain to you why. I think it comes down to going back to basics and like working on fundamental like opportunities, problems, uh, like being very close to our customers. And when things were growing too fast, it felt like I was working on our growth more than I was working on solving customer problems. And so the thing that I was actually working on were like 
what decision-making framework are we going to implement? And like, what's the new title that we're going to implement for like this level of seniority and blah, blah, blah. And I could go on and on. And while some of it is interesting and a good learning opportunity, when that becomes 90% of what you do, like it's just a very personal thing. I don't get nearly as much energy as I get now when, you know, I'm actually thinking about what to build next. Like, how is the market changing? Tools are consolidated. AI is changing how companies approach communication. Let's validate with the market that, that what that's, that's what they want. Uh, I'm leading the marketing team right now. Like, and it's great. Like, I feel like I'm doing work. It's, uh, we have so much to prove and, you know, I'm, so I have much more energy. It reminds me of a time very much in like the hyperscaling, you know, periods when we had this meeting that led to meetings of meetings where we were deciding whether or not to implement the bound, the, the, the titles between director and VP, like, should we have senior director and just like long debates about should we do that or not? And I remember even at the time, and a lot of us were frustrated about that at the time even, and uh, we, we did end up implementing the senior director in case you're curious. Um, but now by comparison, we spend so much more time talking about what does the customer need and how are we gonna solve the problem? What's the dynamic of the market around us? And it's much closer to, I think, what's like, you know, satisfying the most founders of like, what's the product that you're going to build and how are you going to get it to customers? Which is like, it kind of connects to the point you made several minutes ago about how like, you know, the, the type of learning that employees are going to get is less about just like scaling and hiring teams. But now it's going to be more about like the real underlying work and like excellence and like sort of the atomic unit of the work underneath, which I, I enjoy more. Certainly. Yeah, I agree. And one thing I've learned is you could think that uh, like that's true because we're founders and so we started this company. So like we care about this. But like this week, for example, our CFO came back from Matt Leave and, you know, so she was out for three months. And like she said, just within three months, these meetings like seem night and day because we're really talking about, all right, like we're doing H2 planning how do we believe our customers will get much more value at the end of the second half than right when we are now? And I think that gives energy to our CFO so much as well when you could think, well, you know, like her job is really about scaling and like hyper growth seems exciting and intellectually challenging, but no, like it feels so right to put your customers at the center of everything you do. And this recession has forced us to do this in a way two years ago. We were forced out of it because it was so crazy. And I think it will remain a good learning opportunity forever. Maybe that's a good segue to talking about sort of like the business and product. I'd be curious just to hear some of your reflections. I mean, I think I can share for, for us uh, at Lattice, we've just learned that the dynamics of the way people buy, the way budgets are done the way people think about their renewals and expansions, a lot of it has really changed. And a lot of it has shifted both in terms of what roles inside the company have power, where the budget is flowing from, what sort of overall stack people want, and how much tool dispersion people are willing to tolerate versus one in consolidation. I'd be curious just to hear some of your own learnings and reflections around uh, like what have been some of the big shifts you've seen and like how how do you get your company to react? Yes, so many of them. Um, one that's very specific to front and then I'll say like 
less specific. But, uh, but so the first one is we're a seed-based uh, company. And one thing we've learned is we can have an amazing net retention like in a non-recession environment. Our net retention is above 140% amazing. But that's organic seed expansion. And then people stop hiring and or fire. And all of a sudden, it's extremely hard to only have one level of growth, which is organic seed expansion. And so one thing that we had to work on extremely fast has been to diversify away from organic seed expansion. And I think every seed-based company I know like, has been thinking about it. Uh, We're seed-based too. Yeah. So we've been thinking about it. Uh, yeah. I think you should, like, it's just a good thing to be somewhat recession proof. Um, you don't need to optimize for that because you should also, like, I think one mistake you can do is forgetting that eight years out of 10, like, you should be in a good economy. So you also shouldn't optimize for the two years, but at least have some part of your business that's some of your motions that are recession proof. So that one thing that has changed. The second thing is, I said I get energy from being in more customer calls. Like part of it is because I want to, part of it is I don't have a choice. Like I feel like on the other side, customers are bringing their execs way more. Uh, and so you need to bring your execs way more. And that's a completely new muscle for everyone at front. So that's on the, on the renewal side. I think on the new business side, we have two things happening at the same time. It becomes easier and harder. Um, so easier, one thing that we have going on for us is AI is starting to automate a lot of the transactional communication that's happening. And we've always been focused on more complex communication. So where you need like collaboration and escalation. And now people are putting their humans here. So the why now of France is much more relevant today than it was like even two years ago. So that's helping us. Uh, and then what's harder is sales cycles take longer and we just have to like pick that because budgets are just so much tighter the last thing is consolidation is a real thing uh it's both a threat and an opportunity for us so we like in september we're doing a keynote and we're announcing a, a few new products and that is clearly a response to companies want to consolidate because they want to make cost savings they want uh, to think about how tools talk to one another so that anything intelligent can learn from different systems at once. Um, so that's also impacting our product strategy significantly. You talked about um, how to sort of diversify away from seat model or just sort of the seat dynamic. I'd be curious what learnings you could share. Obviously, like this is a really common business model for software companies, maybe the most common. So any learnings or ways of thinking uh, that you could share uh, as you've reflected on it? Yeah, I mean, I'm so much in the middle of it. So I think first learning is making sure that you're not uh, like optimizing, optimizing for the wrong thing. But like if you're seed-based and have an amazing lend and extend model, like you shouldn't shy away from it. Like you should still be deliberate about uh, making that happen. I think uh, there is a difference between saying you want to be multi-product uh, like diversifying away from seat expansion doesn't equal like being multi-product. I think uh, the early days were thinking, well, it's obvious we should just sell more products. We will just uh, generate more revenue on the EV on the existing business side. But uh, I think there are many more levers you can like. We have four plans up front. You can work on making sure that your upgrade path 
work so much better. So that's something that we changed, making sure that even on the lower, like less expensive plan, you get access to pretty much everything. Then you have usage limits so that you understand what it does. If you need more, you can upgrade. But that's a different way to diversify away from seed extension. That's like remaining one product for plans. I think there are um, many other things you can do. Like um, we have an add-on. We are exploring usage, pricing. Like these are all things that are not multi-product. I think a product like you know, front or I'm thinking Asana or others, like some of them have such a big market that like releasing multiple products is not the right thing for us. Like for us, we'd rather have one single product, multiple channels of communication, like go really deep and making sure that we do communication plus operations, like workflows, insights, knowledge, everything. But this is just one product we sell. So my biggest learning is don't don't necessarily work on multi-product because uh, it might not be the right strategy. And on this, I think our uh, chief product officer always tells me one thing that I find so useful, which is like obsess over the value you're going to deliver to your customers. And if the best value you're going to deliver is by adding more things to your one product, do that. It would be a short-term optimization to build another product that delivers less value, but like add a revenue stream good in the short term bad in the bit term optimizing for customer outcome is always the best uh, thing to do. Another thing you've been very deliberate about is your time prioritization. Well, first off, you, you make your calendar public so the whole you know company can see um, how, how you're spending time. H how have you uh, evolved your thinking on kind of like where is the highest leverage point for you to spend your time? I think it's uh, more about how deliberate I am. Like that's what's unique. At the beginning of every week, I have a 30 minutes where called like club of mine. And I really like, I think, here is what I want to achieve this week. And that really prevents me from being in a reactive mode. And so I say, well, okay, there are these three things I want to achieve. Um, and sometimes it's just like as broad as I want to work on employee morale. Like, but then I make sure that within the week I have dedicated time to work on these things. That's one. Number two is, I have some step back time. I've always done this. I think it's so important. I just uh, read a book called Stolen Focus on how our brains uh, like are so bad at dealing with being bored or like non-stimulation. And so I have three hours and all I have is a notebook. Uh, like I usually go for a run like for 30 minutes before so that my brain is clear and then I don't have my phone and don't have my computer. and the truth is, out of the like two and a half hours I'm gonna have step back, like I'm only gonna find like one or two great things, and it's gonna be a lot of unproductive time and thinking about my personal life as much as my professional life. But it will put my brain in a state that is like impossible otherwise, and that's what leads to the best ideas. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Zooming out and, and gearing up towards wrap. Um, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned earlier that you have a number of CEO friends um, or, and, you know, people further along um, who you have learned from and look up to. What are some superpowers that you've identified in, in these people or your CEO friends, perhaps, perhaps Jack himself, uh, that, that you wish uh, that you, you wish you could uh, emulate a bit better? Um, so thinking about not Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I think I get. Uh, a lot of value from people that are like so Jack and I I would say are like 
similar people, like companies are a similar stage. I think it's incredibly helpful to be able to understand what's going on in other companies. And if you're not doing that, especially now, like it is so important for you to make the right decisions, but also to be like mentally stable. Um, I think that's very different from, for example, um, company of state was a month ago, Jennifer Tejada, who runs Pager Duty, uh, who's one of our investors came and gave a talk. And it was so amazing to learn from her experience. Like basically the basic thing of you've been through a recession before, here is how to think about it. Like I'm going to learn so much more than, you know, by talking to Jack, who is exactly in the same age as me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but at the same time, like, Jennifer doesn't have the same problem. Like, she's running a public company. And so I just think that that balance <laughs> of learning, I think, is, um, is key. I want to ask you both about valuations. And I'm curious, just in the tech industry, what have we learned about valuations in the sense that when you're advising founders you invest in or, or just advise, and they're saying, hey, I have... Um, you know, how, how should I think about valuation in my Series A, Series B? Like, is there a sense that I should just optimize for the for the a good partner at the highest valuation? Or is there a sense that I should deliberately do something that's more reasonable, even if I'm getting these term sheets? Um, I, I guess, what have we learned? Like, I wonder if that's a thing that has the opposite of survivorship bias, where you only hear about um, valuations when it's a company that's failing to meet its valuation, but you don't often hear about, you know, where we don't mention valuations when it's a company that keeps crushing it, keeps raising high valuations and keeps like, you know, succeeding. And so I'm, I'm curious what, what you advise uh, founders there. It's a great question. And I definitely agree on, on the fact that if you just listen to one kind of company, you'll uh, not have the right answer. The way I think about it is extremes are never good. So like, I, I'll, I'll tell you two extremes. The first, like the first one is me raising my series A having a term sheet and not going to market and just taking it. And me now having a lot of regret because actually like so much dilution came from it. Um, so that's one. And yet, like the thing I said was I optimize for the best partner. Like that is going to drive way more value. I think it's like an extreme. Like you shouldn't do that. I don't think that like in general, I think investors are helpful at some things, but the reality is you won't find a lot of companies that will tell you we've succeeded because like, this investor invested, like, yes, they can be helpful. And so uh, I think you should make, one thing I would optimize for is uh, like the brand of the firm is always helpful, like just cause that helps with hiring. Two is someone that will help you do your best work. I've always found that when people I admire invest in my company, like I want to do well and that has a, a really high impact. I always feel like CEOs need to reinvent the wheel and things that very smart people have thought about before if you have, CEOs of well-run companies that can share with you so many things about how they deal with comp and comps and like whatever, and just do that, that will save you a lot of time. But apart from that, like be realistic on what an investor is going to bring. So that's the reason to care about the, the partner, the investor, but not care to the point that you would have like, you know, way more dilution. Um, it's funny because, I mean, I can, to be very concrete, like my first our first investor uh, was Patrick Collison and Stripe was known to have crazy valuations. And so like I was telling him, I'm raising, and it was like, raise at this valuation. I was like, I think you understand where I'm at as a business. Uh, and, and I think it 
comes to what you're comfortable with. Like, I think it worked really well for Stripe and that's great. And I don't think it's inherently bad, but the reality is I always want to be able to tell whoever joins one there is an upside. And if I'm just a like paranoid, like French realistic down to earth, like person, like it's just who I am and I'm not going to change this. And I, I'd rather undersell and over deliver and that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just who I am. And so just making sure that the valuation feels right to you is way more important than optimizing for the best valuation or like, or not. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that was all really well said. I think um, I'm of, I'm, I, I sort of shake out in the middle where I feel like on one hand, you know, investors will obviously pitch a humongous amount of value contribution. But then when you're up close to it, you realize that, you know, for, you know, a great exec, who works at the company for four years, for 50 hours a week, giving it their blood, sweat, and tears in a functional role. If that person, you know, is half a point or 1% or 0.3 or whatever that number is going to be, depending on stage and role and everything, that person is likely going to have a lot more impact on the trajectory of a business than, you know, what any particular investor would. And the difference in dilution between investors can be much more dilution than what that one exact costs. And so by that metric, it's really hard to stack up and say, yes, it's worth spending four extra percentage points for a particular investor instead of spending that extra four percentage points getting much better and much more engaged, you know, execs across a bunch of functions over a bunch of years. It's just like the math on that is really hard. The thing I would say about investors, though, obviously, as Brent Matilda alluded to, the brand is like weirdly important. Like the impact of the brand on recruiting, future fundraising, internal employee morale, like there's a real thing there. And I think that is worth, I think that's really worth something. Uh, the other though, is that the investor relationship, if you get the right one, it is a special relationship. And I know Matilda's had investors like I have, which has been a very lucky thing to have investors who you really treat as a true confidant. You think of them like a real partner. You're willing to tell them everything. You're very vulnerable with them. And they are fully sort of aligned with the business. They're in there with you, but they're not inside. They're on the outside and they've got visibility to all this other stuff. And so it's not, it's, that, that's why the other side of it is that it's not just the same as spending, you know, or spending equity on uh, people who work inside the company. It is a unique thing. And, um, you know, like my uh, lead investor from uh, our seed round and then did our A, Miles uh, Grimshaw, who was at Thrive and now Benchmark. He's been a close partner to Lattice for like seven years at this point. And that is, you know, that's like a tenure and a durability and a set of context that, you know, it matters a lot. So I don't want to undervalue it, but it, you know, it goes to a point just because of just the math of it all. So yeah, I probably shake out in the middle. Yeah. I don't have anything to add on the investor side. I, I will say on the valuation side, we, we at OnDeck definitely got caught up in this idea that we could now make a bunch of seven-figure, you know, stock offers to employees who would would then be more likely to join our company. And, and that worked for a bit, although there was a smaller subset of people who were more sophisticated who would say, hey, you're not really worth that. Um, and now there's like less upside for like, it's actually counter, um, it, or it's less interesting um, for that reason. And so I think, I think we got, caught up playing playing that game a little bit and i think a number of um a number of other founders did too for sure 
Well, let's uh, let's wrap on that. Uh, Mathilde, thanks so much for for joining the One Two Thousand podcast. Uh, it's been a great episode. Thank you so much, both of you. It was great to see you too.